Hello and welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Gaming Podcast, where we connect industry leaders to discuss experiences, challenges and successes in the gaming industry. I'm Adam, your host for today, and I'm joined with Franco, Ressa, Ferradon and David to discuss sound and audio in gaming. Hi everyone, this is Chris Bennett here, the Knowledge Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Now, before we jump into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions of who you are and what you do. Uh, so, Franco, do you want to kick us off with that? Yeah, of course. Uh, very nice to see you all here. Uh, I'm Franco Freda. I'm the head of audio at Paradox Interactive. Awesome. And uh, Ressa? Yeah, I'm Ressa, the uh, CEO and founder of Gamey Audio, the audio outsourcing studio. And Feridun? Yeah, thanks for having me, Adam. Uh, I'm Feridun. I'm a sound designer and composer with 20 years of experience in film and video game industry. Uh, I'm the co-founder of Madrusu Game Audio Lab, uh, who is creating tailor-made music for video games. And also, I'm the co-founder of Swish Swoosh as well. Uh, we create genre-specific sound effects and audio software. Uh, I'm more of a business guy, uh, taking care of finance, marketing, and I wear many hats, as you can imagine. Uh, I like what I do, and illuminating the path for the young people in our team is one of my passions. That's pretty much about me. Awesome. That's great. Uh, and last but not least, David. Hi, I'm David. Uh, jack of all trades, master of a few, um, founder of We Are Machine Media, uh focuses on interactive audio interactive music um the whole pipeline from asset creation to uh coding and implementation nice so uh as always you've each brought a question or a point for discussion relevant to gaming uh audio and sound so we'll work our way around the room with each of you to pose your question or point for discussion and then each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on the situation essentially uh so let's start with with david what's your uh, kind of question or statement all right well um i've worked a lot with with education in in the field of interactive audio and and both with uh audio students teaching them the the tools for interactivity game engines and, and coding um but the other way around to teaching audio to game designers and game programmers so that they have an idea of what's going on there um and one thing that i've sort of realized is this sort of bridge uh, or lack of a bridge between skills and, and, and competence with audio and the rest of the design process sometimes. Uh, <laughs> so I guess my question uh, is what, what expectations we should have um, for non-audio specific roles to understand audio, the workflow, uh, the technical aspects of it, and also some of the, the creative uh, aspects of it. What what should we expect them to understand um, when we know what the expectations of us are, and um, how understanding and or not understanding uh, the role of audio, the workflow of audio, and the aesthetics of audio as well in music, um, how that can can lead to both problems and to amazing results, depending on <laughs> on the the understanding or their lack of. Um, and I guess I think that 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 my statement in in this question is, you know, if you go to the average game designer and ask them about light probes, they'll know what you're talking about. You'll ask them about, you know, uh, shaders. You ask them about physics questions. They're gonna understand what you're talking about. But I think a lot of designers, you start talking about audio, and you get that sort of golden retriever, puppy face. Oh, oh that's that's that other thing. That's the 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 four letter word that we don't talk about and and this idea that a lot of times the audio person says like oh they're in the corner they were they've got a microphone and yeah they're they're doing audio stuff and and that that's sort of um i've met a lot of that in in the industry and you have massive companies like obviously like dice and stuff like that where that's clearly not an issue where they have a team of audio developers and an entire own audio system that they program from scratch um 
So it's definitely not something that it's an issue totally, but it's definitely something that I feel, um, like I said, with these other kinds of skills that maybe, maybe that things haven't, haven't really, uh, equalized with the expectations of what we set on, on designers to know. Um, so that was a really verbose <laughs> roundabout way of asking what experiences have you had where you've either worked with a designer that uh, has had a very good understanding of audio, which has maybe led to a, a very nice result and or um, experiences where a lack of understanding has led to problems. Uh, and I guess just to, to not rule things out, maybe a lack of understanding has led to amazing results. It could happen, I suppose. Yeah, I'll uh, open the floor to anyone who wants to jump in there first. I know each of you have been nodded away. Um, so who wants to come in first to that? I mean, I'll just uh, uh, jump right in. And I would start by saying that even in bigger companies, uh, this is a trend that could still happen. Even if, uh, you know, having established uh, audit departments that everyone knows that exists somewhere, we still have this thing that, you know, at Paradox, we, uh, you know, our sound studios are in the top floor of the, the, the west side building, right? And uh, everyone has a, some sort of like perception of it as being a magical place uh, where, where, where things that are unknown to uh, mortals happen. And um, so, you know, obviously there is a... a a, a nice way of bridging this into their uh, everyday life, especially when we're talking about different disciplines. And some disciplines might have a, a need to understand audio better than others. But in general, I would say uh, that the rule of like, if it's good audio, you should not really notice too much that it's there. I think that is the, the easiest way to, um, to, to start the conversation. Like, Hey, have you have you noticed how this impacts the game? It's like, oh no, it just felt so natural. Great, then we've done a good job. Uh, if they start coming at you like, hey, you, you are you the audio guy? Then there's probably something that you need to fix, uh. <laughs> for sure. I'm gonna approach this point from another uh, point of view. I made an interview with uh, with Pranav Maybe you may know, uh, like ten years ago or something. And uh, she is the Hollywood Hollywood composer. Uh, who composed uh, music for Marvel, Captain Marvel, I think. And uh, I was I asked her uh, if she's trying to give some technical information about what she do or uh, about the uh, like the style of the the instruments that she's using and how they imp uh, how they impact the emotions, how how uh, she used those in, uh, those uh, instruments uh, to manipulate this uh, music. Uh, on the on the audience side, uh, so uh, are you trying to like educate the directors per se? And uh, she told me that this is my profession, and uh, I I I know what I can do with the instruments or uh, with all those technical details. Uh, but I mostly talk about the emotions uh, that they want to uh, transfer to the audience. So uh, if I I can understand that point, uh, I can use my tools to create the best stuff. Uh, it's it's uh, something like this in 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 the linear media. But uh, if we are talking with with an artist uh, with with art uh, leader in the game audio team, I think it would be better to talk about the emotions, the the the, the feelings that they want to pass to the uh, audience. But uh, I know that there are some technical stuff on on the uh, gaming, and there are some coding part, and we can use the uh, interactive audio uh, if they know how the audio uh, behave uh, by by using those tools or creating variations are very easy by using the codes as well. So um, it is always uh, like easy to work with a programmer who who knows at the at least a basic knowledge of audio. How, how would you behave? Uh, I think this is my point of view about point. That, that's me left, right? Okay. So I, I totally agree about the emotions. So approaching the audio from the UX side is the best, as I can see from my experience. And given that game audio is relatively young, in, if compared to the film audio, for example, the main problem with the developers and people with uh, people of other specializations is that um, understanding that audio is a system, actually. In real life, it works as a system. In games, it works as a system. It is always interactive. So mainly, I see that the game designers think that 
Uh, we make a game and then we get it to the audio department. They make some sounds, they put it into the game and it works. It wouldn't work that way. <laughs> so it is like uh, what what I'm trying to um, what I'm trying to um, communicate to game designers and to the artists, for example. And speaking of the best designers to work uh, to work with is those are people open to learning new things, open to system thinking. Awesome. No, that's some really good points uh, about having like integration. You can't just have, finish a game and send it to audio. Uh, definitely your point there, Franco, about uh, if it's good audio, if you don't recognize it's there. Yeah. You know? um, David, what kind of your thoughts are on what everyone's uh, said there? I mean, uh, I think everyone has, has a good perspective on this. And uh, the the thing you said just now res uh, resonates with me also. Um, I think the idea of of uh, have any of you had this where you know a client or a studio wants a sound just to realize that's not a sound that's a hundred sounds and it's just like you said that's a system you want a system um you want a big synthesizer that takes in a bunch of inputs and parameters and just spits out a great sounding result but that's not a sound file and and it can be so difficult explaining uh, the difference between something that will take me 20 minutes to this will take me a week uh, sometimes. And that can be frustrating, I think. Uh, and that, again, sort of stems from that lack of understanding of, of the entire workflow of what it looks like when you just sort of simplify the sound process of make a sound and put it in or, or this classic, you know, do thing, play sound. And I mean, some stuff is that simple. If you have a Mario game and you jump and it just makes a jump sound. Um, and some of those, it's just like, ah, you can, you know, randomize the pitch a little bit and that's enough. Um, but a lot of times that isn't enough. And because it's a system, it requires scaffolding, it requires coding. And if you come in late in a process uh, where they've sort of just had this do thing, play sound idea to the design and the coding, um, then, then you have to sort of shoehorn your systems into that if you even can, uh, because then sometimes it's too late. It's like, no, we've already coded this in a way where the thing you want to do just won't work. Um, and, and I think sound design, half of it is sitting with a microphone, with synthesizers, with your effects and whatnot. But the other half is the coding. It's how the stuff plays together, um, how the stuff layers on top of each other, how it's modulated, how it's hooked into different game parameters. All of that stuff is just as much a part of the sound design as as the the creating of the assets themselves. Um, but I, I agree also with the emotions, and that I think that that hooks into the other part of this. This the reason I ask this question is uh, terminology. How do you talk with somebody that doesn't have the technical when you're talking about decibels, when you're talking about fast Fourier transforms, and these kinds of technical audio terms, um, where Again, maybe you, you can't have the expectation that they know what you mean, what language you use. And and uh, when you have someone that says like, well, I like this, but can't you make it sound a little more purple? You'd be like, oh, uh, okay, I'll I'll do my best to make it sound more purple <laughs> and, and trying to sort of interpret what what something like that would, would mean. Um, and, and then um, being able to have that sort of more technical talk. I mean, the four of us, you know, we could be talking about like, oh, well, I think the transient is a little too hard on there. Maybe we should like use a, a transient shaper to bring that under control or, or there's not enough attack, the opposite. We're lacking punch there. We can talk in that way where the other person immediately understands like, okay, great. And if I were working for you, if you told me that I could be like, great, I'll go and make that change. And, and, and that, that, become so much more efficient and fast than uh, trying to decipher this sort of vague when you're too, talking in two languages uh, and maybe the other person lacks the, the language to talk about to explain what it is that they they want they hear it but they don't have the words to describe it well I think it's like a skill to develop uh, to speak that language with both sides to understand you at the same time so it's difficult, but it's not not that bad, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to be thinking after this what uh, the color purple sounds like. <laughs> Try to understand where they're coming from. I uh, stole that from a uh, uh, friend of mine, I think, yeah, the <laughs> designer that once said, I think it was blue, actually. It would sound more blue. 
uh, I could discuss what uh, the you know the the flavour blue and the sound blue sounds like all day, but uh, <laughs> um, I think we'll move on to uh, Franco's uh, question or discussion point now. Yeah, and I mean I'm so glad that David went first because my point now ties in perfectly to everything we've been discussing so far. I mean, what I brought onto the onto the table today is is basically to talk about the pre-production in game audio, and this is you know how to actually bridge this and 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 change the mentality of audio comes last, uh, which I think it is very you know it's it's obviously coming from from linear uh, mentality or at least in my opinion right and how uh, basically what Bressa was mentioning before as well like the interactivity is the defining factor in here and uh, uh, both both in in real life and in games everything will be producing a sound because something else had already had some sort of instruction happening before when you go into linear of course you see this happening as a sequence that you're putting audio too but there are elements in that in that piece that will probably be creating this and in the game those elements also exist they exist in the form of features they exist in the form of uh, of triggers of feedback callbacks whatever we need to uh, attach our our sound parameters or sound triggers to so i guess my my point uh, to to today's talk is about uh, you know, pre-production in game audio, coming early to a project to design systemic audio as a way to be more efficient and to be able to test things fast so that we can definitely move on to the polish stage as soon as possible. Um, and, and this mentality of like achieving the, the, the result uh, to try it out. And if it doesn't work, then discard it and move to another way uh, of doing the same thing before actually spending too much time on the creative part, which, as you guys were mentioning, in my opinion as well, it's it's, it's really just a, a small percentage of, of what game audio is all about. I can jump in with my answer to this question. Uh, I think this is one of the issues I faced in my video game and film career. Uh, the developers tend to uh, wait until all the, all the animations to be locked uh, before moving to audio sometimes. And most of the time, they uh, that there is only a few weeks for audio production after the animation slot and most of the game studios do not know how much uh, time they should reserve for audio production they tend to rush after after the uh, like visuals locked and animation slot and they decided mecha mechanics uh, at that time i believe we have a huge responsibility on uh, explaining how the audio works, how the audio process uh, works as audio guys. Uh, we repetitively tell the developers uh, that the audio guys should be involved in, in the process at the very, very early phase uh, of their projects. And that's why we sometimes uh, make some yearly contracts and uh, the results are really different than the, like rather than short term, sh short term, con uh, short term projects. And uh, because there's the back and forth feedbacking process, as you know, and uh, oh. if if the studio is looking for a quick solution, then you, you, it will be quite good. The, the result will be quite good. And as the audio best, we should be careful about it because if you are like putting signature under under what we are doing, uh, the the it should sound good. Uh, that's the danger. <laughs> that's the handicap. And uh, Involving the team in the early phases of the production uh, gives the opportunity to adapt their work, uh, the, adapt the audio team uh, to create an atmosphere, audio atmosphere, and also it helps them to understand the uh, the uh, game's tone, game's uh, style, and their setting, and also they need to uh, take their time with, with the other uh, members of the team. Uh, they they get used to each other and uh, for me it's the the feedbacking process is really important because game developer team has always uh, some comments on what you do and there's a feedbacking process on that uh, on that period and uh, also there's the results coming from from the uh, players the, the I mean the playing uh, playtest results so. Uh, they sometimes decided to sh shorten some of the animations, so we should comply uh, with all those changes. And uh, this approach, like uh, working long term, you can save time 
by catching potential issues early on and uh, avoiding some reverb later. Awesome. Uh, I like the the reverb uh, stuff later. <laughs> Is that what you said? <laughs> it's a good pun. Uh, Ressa, uh, let's go to uh, you next. Oh, I got a lot to say about that. For us, uh, pre-production is a compulsory thing. We just, we don't like um, uh, tell developers, give us the information. Oh, no, uh, we don't tell them that uh, we need some stuff. We just demand that. So we say, we need from you the documents from Confluence, everything you have on game design, everything you have, like uh, every plan you have, uh, every um type of pipeline every uh, roadmap you have on the project like basically everything then uh, we take a closer look at that and then we form the so-called audio vision document uh, it happens every time and we include everything there from the target audience to the categories we need to think about uh, because we have some HDR mix, for example, with different categories uh, which are um, hierarchically um, in hierarchical order like uh, in the project, uh, especially with VR projects. Uh, one of our biggest clients is CM Games, uh, which is working with a lot of VR projects, so we just have to think thoroughly that every time. Um, also, what we uh, what we love to do is uh, to define levels of quality. Um, if you've uh, heard about um, Rob Bridget's leading with sound book, uh, it is described there, and it really helps because there are several uh, levels of quality of um, the sounds, and uh, level zero is uh, the pre-production stuff with the placeholders. Uh, level one is like slightly better than it's uh, the production quality and the uh, golden quality for the release of the game, something like that. So uh, we use that, that uh, helps a lot and that helps the developers realize how much time we are going to spend on mm, uh, one or another uh, sound system. Uh, well, so uh, speaking about uh, audio vision, we do the audio vision document, we do mind maps. Uh, it is like um, we do mind maps for everything from uh, the whole concept of the game uh, to the to the certain system, for example, the I don't know, footsteps or something like the weapon system or a certain weapon. If, if it's needed, because sometimes uh, those are really sophisticated to design, so we need just to uh, keep that in mind somehow, and uh, we need to communicate it to the developer, because the developers sometimes don't understand uh, when we tell them that, uh, like verbally, so we need to show them what we're talking about. Uh, we also do reference media research, and create mind maps about that. For example, there is a game which is AAA and it has all the sounds that we need. It has uh, all the um, UX, uh, audio UX stuff that we want to uh, borrow, <laughs> I would say that. So we make a thorough research and we make a mind map based on that. And then we go to prototype and there are several ways to do this and that helps a lot. So all those things are real-time savers and we never skip any of those steps, I'd say so. Awesome. I love the point there. I love a good mind map and especially I think with uh, VR, uh, you know, audio is so important because you're so, uh, well, pressed up against the the, the game, the screen. Uh, so I guess it's really important to you know, touch upon those senses, so to speak. Um, but David, let's go to, to you next. Yeah, um, I guess my my perspective is this. Uh, I mean, I I work as a consultant mostly. Um, we have some in in house projects, but uh, as a consultant, often I don't get to choose um, how well or poorly a project is planned, um, and I don't get to choose when in the process we're involved. So the the classic thing is, of course, yeah, this is gonna be shipped in two weeks oh oh yeah and we you know figured we need audio on this too um and then you just sort of have to roll with that and and of course manage expectations uh make it very clear 
to the person, the client that, well, you do what you can in the time you're given. Um, but I think that everything that, that's been mentioned so far with pre-production, um, it's incredibly important and, and no one realizes that more than someone that isn't given the benefit of having that process because uh, you make bad decisions. We're all human. Um, and when you have time to iterate, that's when you, you deal with those poor decisions. Uh, and especially when you have try a chance to try something out, you can also be more ambitious with your goals. Um, you can try to create a more complex system and uh, have time to let that sort of breathe and, 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 and become something. Um, and if you don't have the time, then you're not going to be ambitious. You're not going to be pushing the boundaries. You're just going to go for the lowest hanging fruit of this just must get done. Um, so uh, I'm also big for, for planning uh, for, for sound, creating a sound design document. That's also the first thing I do, regardless of how late in the process we come in, because I, I'm very cluttered in my brain. Uh, and so I need order around me. Uh, so I would try to create order around me so that the chaos in my head has, uh, some, something to latch onto. And then if I, if I go into the office and be like, I don't know what I'm doing, then I say, wait, it's okay. I have a document. I open the document. I was like, okay, here, this is what I'm doing today. Uh, so that's incredibly important. Um, I also mentioned I've, I've been teaching a lot. And so I've gotten to see the, the microcosm of game development through the eyes of, you know, having, uh, uh game audio students, artists, programmers and game designers, um, and, and, and seeing how ambitious the audio students that I've had have been in a project that's just a month long or, or two months long, purely because they were able to be involved from the inception of the, the progress of the project. Um, I think that's also really important that they're, they're able to give input from, from the design phase and, um, having also the the ability to the to ask for things and be like well should we do this that other people haven't thought about um makes it so that you you open up possibilities and doors that otherwise might not be there um classic thing is also just uh make the sounds and let the artists and the animators have the sounds why does it have to be the other way around why do you have to make the sounds based on the animations and the art there's no reason it's just sort of again back to this it's so imprinted in people that audio is this distant distant weird thing that no one knows anything about that it just becomes obvious that you would do the art first but it doesn't have to be absolutely if there's a uh, game directors out there or any hiring managers make sure to put uh, audio in the early pipeline so if david comes on the project he's not coming in with please, please, a week please. to go <laughs> um frank it looked like you wanted to, to say something there yeah, I mean, I was I was um, thinking about everything you guys said, and also realized that one of the tools that we might have at our disposal as audio uh, designers in general is the fact that, regardless of if the game actually will run on a middleware or not, which you know hopefully it will for all of our benefits, but let's say that uh, that you might be in one of those fringe scenarios that still exist where you don't use a middleware, you can still use middlewares to actually test a lot of things yourself. So this is kind of like an experimentation phase where you know that the, there are going to be certain things happening that maybe the team can't really guarantee that they're going to be able to do for you or that they're going to be able to build for you. But you can also use this middleware exercises, sandboxes, you know, soundcaster sessions or whatever to just showcase that to the to the game team. And because it's only then that they realize that there is actual logic behind your request. Sometimes when it deals, when it, when it has to be, um, you know, negotiated on onto if you're a, a freelancer, a consultant being embedded onto a team, or in our case, when we need to, you know, appropriately forecast how much time we're going to spend on 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 a certain expansion or a certain title, then it's important to uh, to be able to showcase what is the end goal from the beginning as well, uh, rather than uh, being told only like as as David you were mentioning, it's like well you only have two weeks, so do whatever you want, and that's fine as well. Like there are there are different sizes. Uh, and different projects and different ways of of approaching each project. And some projects might just require very little. Uh, some projects might actually be limited all around. And that doesn't necessarily mean that your uh, your end result will will be worse because of that. Um, but I guess in in general, uh, having tools ourselves that can help showcase what the pre-production will be, um, even if there is no no game yet, I think that's a very exciting topic. Yeah, we did that several times, like showcased 
something, some prototypes and the middleware and the teams then ended up using this middleware. I think that actually uh, is a nice little segue actually to, to rest of your point, I think. Uh, do you want to go to your, your question there? Uh, do you mean the, well, what was that? Uh, research, research and development. Research and development. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Whatever. Like, uh, I wanted to ask uh, whether you guys do usually do uh, research and development uh, for your projects. I mean, like, research on a certain um, technical audio system or a certain reference game or uh, some new technology, some new software, something like that. Because we uh, we are very keen on that. Uh, we um, study everything that happens uh, on the internet with the middleware and uh, when uh, some new thing appears, we just want to try that because, um, for example, uh, not in game Yaudo, but in CM games, the audio team has grown uh, from scratch from uh, the R&D department, so this mentality like remained uh, until now. Uh, so. Uh, for example, we started uh, this uh, Nitro Nation World Tour game about the cars. It is like the drag racing game. Uh, and we were already using WISE with Unity. So uh, there was this rev tool, the granular synthesizer, and I looked at it and I was like, why won't we use that in our game? Because we have a VR game in this universe and we have a mobile game in this universe. So we can basically reuse this granular synthesizer in both projects. And we ended up using it and it's really cool. Still, it's, it was like experimental. It required a lot of work. We put a lot of work in that. But uh, we researched it for several months and we tried different things with uh, creating the models for this engine because it needs uh, the model to be uploaded there and then it likes it like uh, like works with that uh, it uh, takes small granules of the sound and synthesizes uh, the whole um, automobile engine sound from the small granules and then uh, it like mimics the actual physics of the engine so we ended up using this and we are doing it every time it's just one example mm, so i was wondering whether you guys do that as well i mean i would um i would start by saying that yes experimentation and research and development it, it, it's it definitely can be part of the pre-production stage as well uh and um but it also can be something to to do especially for for those out there that are uh, searching for the next gig, something to do on your on your spare time as well, just to be more prepared for the next gig, uh, which makes it very, uh, you know, very exciting so that you are uh, always coming up with new ideas because uh, the, the typical uh, f uh, pitfall that we we typically all always fall to after after having been in the industry for a while is that you you, you tend to recreate the systems that you have been able to effectively implement in different titles before. Um, and and sometimes there is a, a very solid and valid reason to do so, uh, which which is maybe because it will push you further to the to the to the end result. but um, but the the actual uh, process of figuring out how to do things differently, is it should be a fundamental part of of everyone's uh, every audio person's life, I would say, and definitely something to to have even a small reminder on your calendar, you know, at least once a month, I would say. Yeah, because everything needs to be more elegant, more optimized, like every time. I totally agree. Uh, Sarah, do you want to give your uh, thoughts around that? Yeah, sure. In Madrusil, yeah, we we do R and D. Of course, it's like a first step for us. Uh, we we talk about the how we can approach to the project how um how uh, we, will the sound palette uh, be sounding in the end of the product uh, so i think this is one of the key points for us and uh, we, we talk a lot about it uh, in the very early phases of the of the project and uh, if we have enough time we everyone would make their own research and we uh, create our they create our uh, their uh, unique approach and uh, if again we have time, we uh, work on 
the same stuff and then we we compare it uh, and decide how to go uh, go on with the project uh, audio wise and uh, in Swiss social and is a must for us in that field because we are creating some uh, genre specific sound packs and we have to examine like a lot of games a lot of films and uh, also we, we we need to see what our other creators are uh, designing uh, in the market so R&D is the thing that we are using too much uh, I think that's the, all those give us some ideas about our way absolutely um, I kind of want to jump in uh, and kind of ask David because uh, as a consultant from your perspective as Franco said you know once a month at the minimum uh, for R&D what are kind of your thoughts around all of that well um, I mean when, when things are good you're getting projects in all the time uh, then you know the R&D is baked into the work because you're just getting different projects with different problems um, and so it's it's like you said uh, with the downtime that's sort of the important thing is to say like okay well I don't have anything going on right now I should check out and see what the what's new um, I'm admittedly a little slow with that uh, I guess uh, the, the devil's advocate is, is uh, I feel like sometimes the tools and systems we're using are changing too fast to the point where you're spending more time and effort learning new tools than you're actually at making something. Um, and so I, I, for me, that balance is important because if I find myself sitting 80% of my time just learning new key commands and new software and installing things and going in C++ header files, I just, I'm like, okay, I'll, I'm going to just work with something else because that's not really my, my passion. So there has to be that reward on the other end too of where like, hey, wow, this is really cool. I made a cool thing or this failed spectacularly, but now I know <laughs> I've learned something. Um, so for me, it's a balance about that. But um, I think the, the R&D part is sort of trying to keep ideas in your head. Uh, and the second a project comes in where I feel like, hey, I could try this and then you just try it. Um, and I think the, the most recent example is I had sort of an alternative approach to instead of using ambisonic which is a little static and hard to work with how to create sort of dynamic 3d spaces and create that sense of movement in that space that i find a lot of times is lacking um and so i had a project come in that was in vr so i thought this is pretty appropriate for that and uh i just tried sort of sketching out that idea and, and and it worked and it wasn't really i didn't get to realize that idea in 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 its uh, entirety but I was able to get sort of the proof of concept like yeah this is this this functions and then the next project it's like okay well I got that working in the first time let's be a little more ambitious let's see if we can add extra uh, features extra parameters to this let's make it more robust more dynamic um, can we map things to the real world spaces for instance stuff like that um, and so that that's sort of I think the the way when you're working with with lots of small projects to keep fresh um, is to sort of have the continuity being in between the projects of being like okay well I started this for this one and it had to be good enough for that uh, and then the next project take it a little further um, so I, I think that's that's my philosophy when it comes to those things. But I will say I'm jealous of all of you that do have years to work on something and really can just take, oh, let's just research this thing for a month and just see what happens. I I um I think that would be nice. <laughs> it does sound nice. Uh, you uh, look like you wanted to jump in there uh, when you mentioned VR. Did you have anything to add there? Oh, about VR. Yeah, and that's... Uh... I just wanted to ask you guys whether you worked with VR, whether you know any tips uh, about working with that, because we are working with that a lot and uh, everything is about putting a lot of stuff together, like there is ambisonic and there are some particle systems, there are some plugins and something else and everything is like put together and then we need to make something out of it, we need to mix that, we need to make it work not uh, with a lot of bugs and uh, that is like challenging so what are your thoughts on that on VR in general uh, I say about this point <laughs> my my first project was a VR project but it, it was ended uh, it was it was ended just uh, a year later but I don't have too much experience so I believe that those guys would give more information about it. Uh, I sort of ended up um, 
I did some projects in VR and then it just sort of ended up with that's pretty much all that I've been doing recently because, you know, one thing leads to the next. Um, and uh, I think for me, creating the space again is like the the biggest part of it because, again, in VR, you have this, this you're there. This immersion is so complete. Um, and if what you see and what you hear doesn't match, uh, things get best case weird uh worst case uh throw uppy um and so uh for me uh, i think creating that that movement and the audio uh to create that sense of movement um makes a huge difference just small things like when you rotate your head um the ambience should change it's it, you don't want this this sort of static drone and everything should move because in in the real world all audio is spatial basically with with a few exceptions if you have a subwoofer maybe less so but um if you sit in a room and you hear that sort of tone and you just go to the corner of the room it's different uh there's a fan and that fan is over there um and if you turn your head or if you face away from it it's not going to sound the same and then all those small things compound that if you just say like oh i have this really nice ambience it might be a nice ambience but the lack of dynamics and the lack of matching that that space um, really messes with the brain. Uh, and the ears are together with the balance organ as well. It all sits together. Um, and for me, I've, I've noticed that the actual difference in, in na- nausea, when, when you have that audio there that, that confirms your movement, it sort of tells your brain, yes, you, you went from over there to over here now that that relaxes some part of you that that, that uh, otherwise would get nervous. Um, and I feel, I feel like once you have that base down, stacking stuff on top of that becomes easier. I don't know if your question was, was more about that or if it was the technical side of it, uh, of just how the, the, the getting the mix to sit together. But um, yeah, it was relatively about that. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'll just pop in because uh, I uh, was thinking about uh, the thing that in VR, we are actually in this space, uh, in the same space we can uh, experience in our real life. So uh, one of the things that is like crucial for VR is attenuations, because uh, if we take something and uh, if we throw it somewhere, if it falls with the sound, uh, it is okay. But if it falls uh, not as quiet or not as loud at uh, as uh, it would, uh, as it would have fallen in real life, we will experience uh, that something is wrong. It's like this uh, uncanny valley thing, you know. So everything about that. Yeah. That's that's really difficult. That's super hard because often the difference between being too soft or too loud, it's just it's so subtle and and it's context and it's if you are you tilting your head upwards or downwards um and then not to mention that ears have you know 120 decibels of dynamic range and the little headphones you have in your vr set don't so it's really hard to get those those kinds of sudden sounds to the to sit oh you just need to get better headphones <laughs> that not a not a bad point. I I ordered. Uh, we had a, a VR client that actually was doing a VR project with hearing aids to simulate two different kinds of hearing aids, and so we ordered a headset with built-in headphones just to make it easier because they were going to demonstrate it. Um, and it, it's the worst headphones I think I've ever heard in in my adult life. It wasn't cheap either. It was like two hundred dollars for this this, and it's just like to think that people probably order that. Um, and are listening through that makes my skin crawl a little. The the one thing I wanted to say that uh, it got me, uh, you know, smiling a little bit is that I it reminded me of the of the first time that I got to do some audio and VR. This was uh, about six seven years ago now, and um, you know the technology back then was obviously a lot less powerful as it is today. Uh, we're talking pre Oculus Quest times, uh, Samsung Gear VR times, if you remember that. And already back then, I remember, uh, you know, trying out a, a, a project. This was a first-person shooter project. And um, at some point, getting the sounds of the cue of the enemy that I needed to encounter being exactly behind me, 45 degree on top of my right ear, and immediately moving my head and my hand so that I could point at that 
specifically. That moment was a, a huge realization of the power of audio in VR, because obviously that's what we would normally do if we are, you know, in, in a scenario where that would actually be our threat. Uh, we would rely heavily on the ability to pinpoint the direction exactly. And, um, and and also what happens in this, in already happened back then, is that the conversations about, you know, HRTF and, uh, you know, o object audio being positioned in a 3D environment and, and being able to translate that uh, with the game engine and the audio engine. Uh, for me, it's also quite nice how it now is transitioning to this Derby Atmos world where we're living, where everything is about making sure that that gets translated perfectly and I, I cannot be more happy about it because it's finally like like we were saying before right we don't need to explain people what surround sound is anymore we just tell them like hey you have three coordinates great sound as well and we want to place it there and now we have an engine that can interpret that and it's going to make all of our lives easier we don't need to talk about lrc lfe lsrs anymore like necessarily as as uh, you know discrete channels where we're going to be putting audio to so yeah i'm really excited about that what a time to be alive right I, I understood uh, surround sound and then everything after that, no. <laughs> so yeah, case in point. Um, I am conscious of time. I do want to hear a Feridun's point, but I just wanted to ask a, a quick question, really. I've not really um, played many VR things, and if I have, it's been at an expo. Um, but in terms of these, like, sort of, uh, as you mentioned, like this big range of decibels with each person, um, is there like sort of a, a calibration like you get on uh, like brightness on a screen, for, but for sound? Is that a thing in the VR space? There's standard called uh, LUFS, L-U-F-S, um, that a lot of people use as sort of a reference value, and it's the human ear's ability to sort of differentiate between loudness. And so you set that usually to a level. Um, I, there's industry standards for TV and radio and, and those kinds of things. As far as I know, there's no, I mean, there's no legal standards for games <laughs> because they're games, but usually they you decide on on a level that you want. There are actually some standards for the consoles, I believe. For yeah. yes, there are some standards, but for VR, it's like too young to have standards yet. Fair enough then. But um, yeah, I to kind of hear Feridun's question. I know we're all pressed a bit for time, uh, so I'll hand it over to you. Uh, very, uh, you know that a very important part of our job is to create that uh, consistent in environment uh, in audio and like harmonious environment in the audio uh, for, for a game and uh, I believe that's the main reason the developers hire the audio guys and uh, when it comes to audio there are a few choices for uh, game developers one is to find all those uh, sound sets and music tracks from online stores another is to uh, have an in-house team and uh, lastly there's the option to outsource the audio uh, I'm curious about your perspective on uh, how these various options affect the game audio journey and uh, the overall audio consistency. Uh, that's my question. Oh, I mean, this is such a big topic. Is, are you are you referring to, for instance, using audio libraries or actually sourcing uh, content yourself? Uh, I mean, the studios are searching for, for, for the uh, online stores to catch the right uh, assets for, for their games because of maybe the budgetary issues. Mm -hmm. So uh, I mean that, that they are trying to find the right sets and uh, that that's the first option that they can uh, they can do. But um, these the other options to outsourcing and in-housing a team uh, is the other option. So how, how, uh, what do you think about the result, uh, the differences in the result? All right, well, I... I would start by saying, like, if you if you can, uh, always get at least one audio person that will be guarding the realms of sounds for your project. Uh, don't just grab sounds out of the, an online source and try to uh, to put them yourself in. Not because you're not going to do a great job. Maybe you will, uh, out of pure luck, probably. But uh, um, uh, but really, you want to make sure that you can focus on other things, right? And everyone has a role to play. And uh, audio people are focusing uh, on that specifically. So obviously you can get uh, sounds. And if you want to do that so that you can get a placeholder right there to test the feedback right away, yes, by all means do so. And I think there is a, there is a, a lot of value in, in maybe trying that out if you're, if you're interested in, in that. But otherwise, always try at least to get one person that will be 
taking care of that. That would be my my general advice. Uh, whenever whenever that has not happened, um, it is it is a rare occurrence that there are really good results. Some people can do everything. Same as some some people can do a full band recording and they will play drums and then bass and guitar and maybe sing, and it's fantastic. There could be some uh, game developers out there that are able to manage that. Um, but yeah, the the results will will vary a lot more than if you actually have someone dedicated. So, what do you think about outsourcing? Would you? I think it's uh, it's totally doable. I mean, here uh, Ressa and David they were also giving some examples of how that could work. Uh, obviously, I, I I can speak from from the in-house audio department perspective. Uh, you know, I have a team of sound designers, audio directors, composers that they all get uh, allocated to different projects, and then obviously that kind of they, they become the point of contact. But in a way, you can also see it as as a, as an internal uh, service provider, right? So it doesn't differ too much. It's about making sure that you have uh, all of the data from the game uh, first and foremost, so that you can create a plan, so that then that plan can be followed along, so that you all match up. Uh, so I guess if you manage to do that, it's more about how are you going to handle the production rather than if this is people that are in the studio or if this is people that are anywhere else in the world. Uh, I mean, if, if the pandemic has shown us anything, is that we can still do things uh, connected uh, in, in different places of the world, which hopefully in the future will will prove to, uh, to be a great way of, of realizing how much more connected we are as a society and humanity uh, than what we think. Uh, who wants to jump in next on that point then? <laughs> on uh, in-house outsourcing? Yes, I do. Uh, I'm on the other side of the, the outsourcing equation. Um, I think that, that, I mean, you can get this sort of situation where uh, you you have to know what you're working with. You have to understand what you're working with. And, and there it's always just about communication. Um, and so I think the risk with outsourcing is, is that you get this team somewhere else um, and that maybe you even worse have than a middle person involved with the communication. So you have someone saying, well, this person told me that they're going for this result. They want the dark, creepy feeling. Um, and then you have this team of people that the only thing they know they're working on is, okay, it's going to be dark and creepy. Um, and then, you know, they start working on that. They have this idea in their head that maybe doesn't really match what's actually uh the, the designer's thinking um, and you just need that constant communication it needs to be daily it needs to be uh, personal and you need to be able to ask questions and get answers to your questions um, if if you really want things to work smoothly um, and I think you've definitely seen some big title games where you have those misses where you maybe even have several different outsourced companies working on audio and no one's looking at the big picture and so you miss these sort of obvious things um, which also goes back to, to what you said previously about have at least one audio person that has that responsibility because if anything else, they have ears that are trained to listen and they, they'll hear things that other people won't hear that are unacceptable. Uh, they'll be like, no, they'll just put their foot down like, no, I'm not putting my name on this. This will change. And that's, that's what I think is the most important thing is you have that person there, uh, with that role. Um, so uh, be able to listen, to have a, a connection to the project that you're working on, not just some go out, field record these sounds and be like, I don't know what these sounds are for, but here you go. Um, I don't think that'll work well. But if you have a tight communication where you're talking with the team uh, and getting feedback on the work you're doing, I don't see why that that wouldn't work just as well as having an in-house team. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, Ressa or Ferdin, um either of your thoughts around the topic? Yeah. Well, I've been on both sides, like uh, but I actually have an audio team inside the company and I have an outsourcing studio with a lot of different sounds, with different outsourcers from different sides of the world. Uh, so I can say that the in-house team is first, it's more controlled. Uh, second, it's cheaper. Of course, it's cheaper because people are on the payroll. Uh, then uh, there might be more professional growth for the team if it's in-house because everybody shares their expertise with other people and uh, intellectual values, intellectual property remains in the company. If you've done any R&D stuff, it remains there. 
but uh, that might be difficult for certain tasks for example if the team lacks certain expertise for example there are no voiceover artists or there is no voiceover manager and you need some voices for the game that might be challenging without without outsourcing on that uh, on the other side uh, with the outsourcing it uh, takes a lot of load of the team of course it is good to get expertise nobody in the team has and i'm not uh, speaking only about the voiceovers and uh, like composing any uh, kind of stuff uh, we sometimes um, outsource some um, theoretical musical things for example we need to build um, some um, how do i call that a procedural system that actually creates the soundtrack the player creates the soundtrack when they're going through the level and uh, we need some um, theoretical music knowledge to um, build up the chords uh, the harmony of that soundtrack mm -hmm. uh, and we actually outsource uh, the expertise to the um, professor uh, in some conservatory in something that or we need uh, some knowledge on the ethnic stuff and uh, we go to the ethnomusicologist and we ask them so that is like happening all the time because we just cannot learn that in a short period of time you know? but it's uh, more expensive and as David said there is like human element to deal with uh, a person on the, uh, on the other side might be a jerk yeah but what I personally think that uh, on the take uh, of one audio person responsible for the sound, I think that uh, this might be a person um, who knows about audio direction, who can do audio direction. And uh, moreover, audio direction can be outsourced as well. So that, like, uh, both sides are good, but you definitely need an audio director. I totally agree with, with your last uh, comments uh, the, the, these are very critical uh, in my point of view and I think having an in-house team is having a more focused I'm an outsourcing person so uh, I I am trying to be uh, like capable of creating like many genres music in many genres and trying to be capable of uh, like growing my skills in uh, like many areas but if, for example, we are talking about a uh, first-person game and that specific person is working for just that game, uh, the skill sets will be maybe growing uh, easily or he'll be or she will be more focused on some specific areas. That might be some of the advantages. Uh, thank you for all your answers. They are pretty clear. Awesome. Yeah, that's been really good hearing the, all the responses to that. Um, does anyone have any like sort of follow-up questions or anything uh, they want to mention? Uh, we've kind of gone over everything uh, today. Anything at all? I actually wanted to address the elephant in the room. What do you think about the AI? Oh, oh my! Do we have another hour? Very end. Yeah, let's <laughs> we could hint that towards a part two, but. <laughs> uh... A serious thing, we should actually uh, think about this for a part two. I mean, there's so much to say. The one thing I will try to to summarize it, because uh, I've been quite interested in this for for almost two years now. Uh, I've been I've been following the trends in, in in audio for different things, from you know VOs to music to uh, sound effect helpers and so on. Um, it moves so rapidly and everything evolves so quickly that uh, it's almost to the point where it's like, oh, great, this is how we want to do it. And then two days later, it's like, oh, no, there is actually a better way of doing it. So uh, scrap that and let's start again, and which is which is obviously, um, it poses some challenges, but I think in general, it's quite interesting. It's quite exciting. And um, it, it, no one's no one's, no one's going to lose their job. I think uh, one thing some, a lot of heard from people talking about AI is that it's not um, like a replacement. It's just a new, another tool in the toolbox, as uh, what I've heard. Uh, quite a lot, uh, which yeah. I think summarizes it. Um, if there's no other like additional points we want to make, uh, it's been really interesting hearing everyone's kind of thoughts uh, from like the few like sort of uh, film projects I've done in the in the past. Like the Foley sound has definitely been one of the most fun things to do myself. So audio, uh, I, I love hearing things about it. 
Um, but I definitely agree with like uh, Franco's point is, you know, if it's hidden, uh, you know, it's, it's good <laughs> in terms of audio. Uh, and David's point about, you know, communication is kind of critical uh, when speaking to, to the client or just other colleagues uh, in the same studio uh, and understanding what the color blue or purple is, sounds like. Um, and yeah, if, if outsourcing needs, you know, in terms of uh, external knowledge, if it's procedural music, uh, shout out to the people who did Halo 3's final uh, final level. I love the, <laughs> how that was handled. Um, but no, I, I've got to say thank you to everyone who's kind of spoke today. Uh, it's been really great having you on. Franco, Feridan, Ressa and David. Uh, and so, yeah, thanks again. So if anyone uh, at home listening wants to jump in on a future podcast and listen to a potential future episode around AI and uh, sound design, then uh, reach out to me on my LinkedIn uh, or my very long email, adam.miller-betridge at evolution-nordics.com. All right. Thanks again, guys.